One of the things that's amazing to me is that you have to guess your endpoints before you start a clinical trial. I think that AI can change that, and that's a big change to this space. Because if you could say, I'm going to see who this works for, you might be able to really identify the cohort and the biomarkers that can truly benefit from a therapy and those who really shouldn't take it. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Navigating novel applied technologies helps avoid common pitfalls and issues, saving valuable time and resources. AI ML is generally a big topic, getting tons of press. This hype extends to the life sciences and translational research. There are a few limited use cases where AI ML have been used, but most instances have been relatively small. We'll discuss the realities of AI ML, its current applications and use cases, directions, and the future. Today, we're here with Carla Liebowitz. Hi, my name is Carla Liebowitz. I'm the Chief Business Development Officer at Page AI. I have worked in the space of bringing AI to healthcare for about four years now. So I guess just for starters, could you do some level setting? Could you explain what AI and ML are? So AI, or artificial intelligence, is a very broad term. Uh, there's lots of definitions out there for it, but the way I like to think about it is uh, if you can train a machine to understand something about its context and act accordingly, it becomes an intelligent machine. So that's the artificial intelligence side. Yeah. What about the ML? What, what's, how, do you, how do you define machine learning? Machine learning is um, a subset of AI um, in which the machine is learning as uh, it is used. So for example, the one of the early applications of machine learning was uh, spam on email, but it was very much uh, a manual input by the users as to what the features were of things they wanted to see versus what they didn't want to see or what the variables were. Um, deep learning is one, and, and it's what most of the hype is about, where the machine itself can identify which features or characteristics of something make it cancer, not cancer, um, a normal uh, genetic variant versus something that's problematic and actionable, etc. So deep learning is, is one where instead of us manually telling the machine, this is spam, this is not spam, um, it can identify very precisely um, these features that might lead someone to classify, you know, picture as, as a cat or a dog. Um, and, and the beauty of it is that well, even the most advanced machine learning algorithms out there maybe had hundreds of variables. These deep learning algorithms can have millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of variables. So it's basically a computer writing math that describes something in a language that we don't necessarily need to understand, but that it could then be applied to other examples of the same thing and um, to identify patterns. Right. And where, where do uh, neural networks fit into all of this? Neural networks are one subset of deep learning. Uh, so it's a technique that are used that roughly somewhat mimic the way that neurons work in our brains. Um, but it's the idea of, you know, if you have an image 
um, you, you know what the pixel value is for each pixel, but then it starts also looking at the shapes and the context and where in the picture that shape is. Are there two eyes above a nose and a mouth and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it looks at it looks at the image or whatever information it's looking at in many different ways and tries to build context for the features that it sees. So you mentioned earlier finding cats in videos and image analysis of cats. Do you have examples of genomics um, or AI examples within the field of genomics? There's quite a few. Um, if, if you're familiar with genomics, it's not that you just you know take a sample from a patient and then you get the genome. There's a lot of steps in you actually arriving to that genome. And then even once you have it, what you do with all that information. So um, AI applied to genomics, I've seen uh, several different use cases of it. The first one is um, what's called assembly. So this is actually a very time consuming process that if shortened could make um, all of genomics much less expensive. So when you take a sample and then you're going to sequence it, it gets chopped up. The DNA gets chopped up into small bits so that the sequencing machines can process those small bits, but then they have to get reassembled just like a puzzle. And finding where each of those pieces goes is pretty time consuming. You can do that with AI very effectively. Um, and so that's one place where even just going from the sample to the strand of letters that make up your genome um, is one, one thing that AI can accelerate and do very well. And then the next one is once you have that strand of letters, um, you need to understand what, uh, what genes in there are actionable or important to whatever condition you have, and that's called variant calling. Um, so compared to a reference that's considered normal or the range of normal, what are the mutations in there that might be causing issues? And AI is also really good at finding those. Um, and finally, if you take hundreds or thousands of genomes of many people, you can then start finding biomarkers and other things that can help you assess who's most likely to get different diseases, et cetera. And there's a lot of diseases out there that um, have one or two genes that are the causants of that. But now a lot of people are using very advanced statistical techniques, including AI, to find those conditions that depend on hundreds and thousands of these different genes and how they interact together. Um, and so AI is used to mine that kind of data and, and extract those insights. Going back to the first example regarding secondary analysis, you were mentioning SNP analysis or, or variant analysis. Could you explain that a bit more, particularly on where it's accelerating the research and discovery part? So far, uh, the, there's standards for variant calling that allow for certain amounts of errors. There's kind of the gold standard is set by the FDA. It's called GATK. Um, and there's, there's a couple of issues with it. One is that you still get a good amount of errors with them. And two is that it's pretty slow to arrive to. Right. So if you really want to make uh, genomics widely available across the population, you need to make it a faster process and less error prone. Um, and actually, uh, NVIDIA working with scripts have already shown that they can expedite the process, make it a lot less expensive and improve the, the accuracy of um, the, those variants that are called. And kind of looking forward uh, into tertiary analysis, right? So you identified... Um... The variants that are of some clinical significance. Uh, how do you how do you find new clinically significant variants? You can use AI once you have enough information, enough genomes out there to really understand what genes drive um, different conditions or what genes might cause someone to not respond to therapy. 
so you what you need to have is you need to have a lot of information about those patients and their genomes, and then you can start mapping um, and 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 drawing relationships between genes that they might have, variants that they might have in common with conditions they might have in common. And, and this is one of those places where if you can process a ton of data in parallel, um, you can do things that a person or an Excel sheet or, you know, just uh, plain uh, old school statistics couldn't do. Right. So you mentioned mapping assembly at the beginning, uh, variant calling, being able to identify those that could be um, clinically relevant, I guess, is what you're going after. And mm -hmm. then trying to find disease that are typically more complex than just one or two single genes. There's uh, one more sure. um, that I forgot. And usually when you're trying to sequence a sample, you uh, actually read it 50 times, 100 times, 80 times, um, because you want to make sure you get it right. Sequencers are not perfect. Uh, and there's also variability within the same patient. Some of your cells might have slightly different genes. Um, and AI has shown the potential to reduce the, the times you have to uh, sample uh, you have to sequence the sample significantly. So that also has the potential to further reduce the cost of, of genomic testing. Right. So you're talking about depth of coverage in terms of the Correct. number of reads that you're covering. So I think the first uh, real conference around AI and ML was back in the 1950s at Dartmouth College, where they started looking at AI research. Why do you think it's taken so long for this to just start picking up a lot of press? I think it's a few things. The The idea of AI has been around for a while, and there has been some AI in healthcare and outside of healthcare that has been successful, but a lot of it was very limited by the amount of sensors you can put in a space, the amount of data you could collect and process, and the amount of computing power you had to do it quickly. One of my favorite examples of very old AI is elevator doors. Elevator doors know when there's a person in the way, and they don't close. Right, that's been around for quite a long time because all you need to know is, is there a person there? Is there not a person there? Can I close? Um, but the amount of data you need to do things like facial recognition or text-to-speech or things like that, um, and the amount of processing power you need wasn't available back then. And so now that you have a lot of data in digital form and very easily accessible computing power, you mix those two together and now you can start doing really interesting things. What do you think was that inflection point? If you look from 1950s till now, what was the inflection point where we didn't have the right compute or storage to manage the data to now where it's becoming a data hygiene problem as opposed to a data compute problem? I think the, the inflection point in many ways is really the invention of the GPU and the application of the GPU to data science. Uh, so GPU is a graphical processing unit. Um, and what it does is the original GPU, it just renders lots of pixels at the same time, as opposed to, I don't know if you remember where you had to wait for an image to appear and it would kind of appear line by line. That's kind of um, processing in series, whereas a GPU can process in parallel. And that lends itself extremely well to some of these algorithms where you're processing lots and lots and lots of data in parallel. Even though they might be simpler operations, you can do it a lot faster. And then the ability to have those in a supercomputer or a workstation or the cloud and the ability to use many of them, that has been credited as one of the key inflection points of when AI became feasible. The other is a digitization of just about all of our data. Right. So you mentioned the complexity and enormity of data. 
uh, obviously in the space of genomics in particular, life sciences kind of in general, that, that speaks really to the challenges, two of the biggest challenges that we have. Could, could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in order to have an AI that performs well, you need huge amounts of data so that the data should be representative of the population in which you want to use the end tool. Um, and as we know in healthcare, every patient is its own universe. Um, so you need to have enough universes um, in, in the data that you use to build these tools so that you are confident that the tool is going to work well on all people. I can give you one example um, of some recent work that I did was there was an algorithm that was trained in the East Coast. And then when it was tried in the Midwest, it failed in all the patients with really enlarged hearts. And the physician said, well, this was trained on skinny vegetarians from the coast, right? It, the algorithm wasn't trained on, you know, people with a Midwestern diet, uh, more of a sedentary lifestyle. And so it is important to have the population in which you're going to apply the tool represented as you build the tool. You alluded to multi-omic data. So having data from a lot of different sources, obviously a big, uh, a big use case around that is biomarkers and trying to create patterns. Uh, how how do you think AI and ML can be leveraged to help accelerate biomarker discovery? Oh, I, I think that's one of the most exciting places for AI and machine learning. Um, the real power of the newer methods of AI is really in finding patterns in huge troves of data. Um, our brains are limited into how much they can memorize um, at one time, whereas if you have enough computing power and enough memory, you can really uh, connect pieces of data, even even if there's, you know, 1% of the samples have the condition, you know, you can actually start making connections between all the different pieces of data that will highlight a pattern. So I guess two questions that come to mind. First is around patient access. How do you go about gathering the data in the first place, whether it's direct patient data or just basic genomic data, right? How do you, how do you get access to people that are making these samples available? How do you get the data? That is, I think, the million dollar question when it comes to bringing AI to healthcare. As, as we said, you need a lot of diversity in your data set. And healthcare data tends to be very siloed and very, very tightly protected. Um, and so it's very difficult to have these data sets that um, will create tools that generalize to the entire population and that could be used out of the box. So. Um, there's different ways uh, researchers, startups, large companies have done it, um, but it's not easy, um, and it's usually it usually takes a lot of time, and that's because even if you have access to the data, a lot of it needs to be cleaned. If you have uh, data from five different hospitals, I can guarantee you it'll be in six different formats. Um, but there is no easy answer. The the only one that is starting to become more popular is things like the UK Biobank or the American Cancer Registry. There are national and regional initiatives to create these data sets, um, but again, it's a time-consuming, expensive endeavor. So going back to the data sharing part, uh, do you have any examples or use cases where a pharma uh, pharma or biotech, so looking at it in the, in the realm of drug development, have partnered with hospitals to, to gain patient access rate in order to create or discover a, uh, or, or develop a drug? Well, there was one that was announced just very recently. I think it was Google and Sanofi. 
um, announced a partnership uh, around drug development, but I think it's just a very early announcement. So I don't know what they're doing there. But that's not a hospital. I know that there's in the drug discovery space. Um, what I have seen is there's there's a few consortia that are banding together to share data in different ways and to share expertise too. Because if you think about people that are amazing at building molecules, they might not have the data science background that you need to bring AI into the fold. Or the data uh, itself. Or the data itself. So there's there's a few consortia out there. Uh, one of them is called Melody, which is in Europe, um, where a bunch of pharma companies have gotten together to try to eliminate candidates faster. So they're sharing some data, not all data, but some data about a lot of their candidates that failed so that um, they're pulling that data together so that they can eliminate candidates in their pipeline faster and therefore make the drug discovery process far less expensive. And more recently, there's also a consortium called Atom out of Berkeley, GSK, and one of the national labs in the US um, where they're also trying to use artificial intelligence to fi find targets um, and, and expedite some of the creation of, of these drugs that has been so onerous and expensive in the past. Yeah, I'd imagine most of those are focused around uh, small molecule development. Uh, do you do you see do you foresee an application of AI ML in large molecules, particularly uh, either biologics or gene cell therapy? I haven't heard of gene and cell therapy, but I know there's some initiatives that are applying cryo electron microscopy to large molecules to to start looking at you know targets um, at. How, how different molecules would bind or not bind to different targets, as well as there are some people trying to use the genomics of a condition to directly design molecules for those conditions. Um, but I, I haven't heard of some that are directly um, applying AI to some of these more biological processes. And the idea there would be to combine genomic, uh, genomic data with phenotypic data to create patterns to train your model and then go back and test it within a subset of a population. Yeah, it's it's actually genomic and epigenomics because a lot of a lot of times um, the the ability of a drug to cause effect or not cause severe side effects has has a lot to do with what proteins get uh, expressed and which ones don't. And there's a lot we don't know in the space. Um, so the the idea is to try to simulate and accelerate a lot of these different interactions. What what narrow AI applications do you see really helping accelerate the drug discovery process and reducing the cost to bring a bring a drug to market? Oh, I, I see a lot of them. I think it's, you know, all the way from identifying targets to high throughput screening with those targets, um, all the way to better uh, designing and identifying cohorts in phase one, two, and three clinical trials, right? I, I think what's one of the things that's amazing to me is that you have to guess your endpoints before you start a clinical trial. And um, I think that, that that AI can change that. And that's a big change to the space. Because if you could say, I'm going to see who this works for, as opposed to I'm going to see these results in this population, you might be able to really identify the cohort and the biomarkers that can truly benefit from a therapy and those who really shouldn't take it. Um, and I think that's good for everybody. Uh, so I think all the way from you know target discovery, drug discovery, and accelerating the clinical trial space and also being able to gain many, many more insights from those same clinical trials is, is pretty huge. Right. So fundamental paradigm shift, particularly 
looking at clinical trial design sort of um, instead of looking at it retrospectively, looking at it from the beginning and, and finding finding better applications for personalized medicine. Right. And you're starting to see that with basket trials. But even in basket trials, you're already trying to guess what's going to happen. Um, in this case, and, and you already know what the biomarker is. In this case, you're saying, I am going to identify the patients who this works for and then go back and see what biomarker exists that can help me then decide which patients should get it and which patients shouldn't. So you mentioned basket trials. Could you explain that a bit more? Absolutely. So basket trials um, have been around maybe for a decade. Uh, and what they, what they were created for was the idea that instead of treating a cancer based on its origin, so if it was breast cancer or lung cancer, you would follow a protocol. The basket trial tried to advance um, in step with new knowledge that was more around what mutations are driving the different cancers. And so instead of getting treated for breast cancer, you would get treated for HER2 positive cancer. And if you had a HER2 positive bladder cancer, you could use that HER2 drug, even though the, the organ of origin wasn't necessarily, you know, one that commonly has that mutation. And so what they're doing is they're trying to be much more focused with, with these targeted therapies um, and understand which cancers they work on. We're looking at providing drugs or treatments to patients based on their genetic mutations as opposed to the, um, I guess, the, the, the origin, as you mentioned, of, of the right. cancer. How does that fit into the context of AI? You know, where is that accelerating that, that portion of, of the clinical trial development or drug development? So I think AI has the potential to build on that um, because we don't know a lot of things that might in hindsight, be very, very useful in getting the therapy for each patient right. So say you have a big clinical trial and then you identify a biomarker um, that you didn't know about before using AI. So maybe it was something in the medical image or it was something in the patient's genome that wasn't related to the disease, but how they process the drug. So there's a lot of things we can do to... Um, to in hindsight understand who responds well to drugs and who doesn't. And I think if we can evolve clinical trials that way, um, we will maximize efficacy of the drug while not having to add huge amounts of money and research into understanding those little nuances. Right. And obviously not speaking for the FDA, but how are they responding to these types of trials? Oh, I, I think that as far as I know, um, I haven't heard of trials that have uh, tried to do some co cohort analysis retrospectively. Um, I do know that there's a lot of interest in real-world evidence and post-market surveillance to try to get at more of those insights. Um, but I, as far as I know, I don't think there's anyone that has gone to the FDA and said, let me do a retrospective look at which patients has worked for and which patients it didn't. Usually what happens is you have to do a follow-on trial right. today. And I would imagine that the IRBs wouldn't, or the consent wouldn't cover retrospective studies, so that, that would be another challenge. 
It would be another challenge, but I honestly think that patients that are willing to go to clinical trials, both to give themselves a chance and to give future generations a chance, would be okay with that. I think it's a lot of it is, uh, you know, thinking about how we can leverage data better for the future. And that's not something that was an option earlier. Sure, sure. Yeah, data science is definitely changing the world. You mentioned life sciences and, and healthcare to be slow to adopt AI and ML. Uh, do you think fintech or or transportation or some of the other industries haven't dealt with these same challenges, particularly one of data hygiene? Um, in some ways, they haven't because they generate their own data. And in some ways, healthcare is always slower to adopt all technologies because lives are at stake, and it's for a good reason. Um, doctors like to practice evidence-based medicine. They want to be sure that they're not putting their patients in danger, um, and they want to understand the technology they're using. So I, I think it's all for a good reason, but I think the development has been slower because of these issues around data hygiene and the difficulty around ETL workloads. Right. So obviously a, a model is only as good as the data it was trained on. Right. It's only as good as the data it was trained on. And for example, um, the National Lung uh, Cancer Screening Trial happened more than 10 years ago. And that's one of the big data sets that a lot of people are using to develop um, uh, AI for chest images um, to, to find lung cancers in there. But that data is missing genomics because 10 years ago, we didn't do a, a biopsy and run it through genomics for every patient. And so there's a lot of missing data there. And so you can get so far, but only so far there. And now we know that lung cancer is 20 or more diseases. And which one of those 20 each patient had, we don't know. So you have to be really, really careful understanding what the limitations of the technology is and how far you can trust it. Right. So quite a bit of genomics training, as well as AI machine learning and understanding where those models how those models were created, derived, and, and their applications, and more importantly, their limits. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I think when when AI tools can tell you, you know what, I don't know the answer to this patient, that's a huge step. Yeah. So do you think there needs to be more work around benchmarking an algorithm versus what a clinician would assess within a patient? I mean, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about pathology and reading slides and the huge amounts of variability between one pathologist and another looking at the exact same slide? In some ways, yes. And in some ways, that's a little bit short-sighted. Um, you can automate a lot of tasks. And, and that's one of the things a lot of people don't understand about AI is that you are training the system to do something very specific very well, but you are not training it to have, you know, this immense ability to understand context and to be able to um, to do thousands of tasks, which is what physicians tend to be doing at the same time. So you, you're, you're selecting which tasks the, the AI is going to be doing. And in some ways, we've already seen a lot of algorithms do better than physicians in some of these really narrow areas. Um, but I think the potential of AI is to really give superpowers to physicians. Um, it's to allow them to do things like guess which patient is going to end up in the ER if they get the flu. No physician could have done that before. Or maybe some really, really great cardiologists, but not at scale, right? Um, so the idea is I think AI can help physicians focus their limited precious time on the areas of the information that matters the most. 
Um, and yes, in many cases, you could have an AI do a first review of a diagnostic test, et cetera. But I think if you can't put that into the context of the entire patient, it's not enough. Right. So kind of looking, looking into the future, you don't foresee a robot replacing doctors or, or physicians. Absolutely not. I, I think, I mean, maybe in 200 years, uh, but by then they would have replaced every other job already out there. Uh, I, I like to say that it takes a 16-year-old about a year to learn how to drive. It takes a doctor 10 years to become a specialist in something. So the amount of knowledge you need, uh, and there's lots and lots and lots of different specialists out there and super specialists, would be really huge. And, and the thing about medicine is that it's always evolving. So even if you memorize everything that's happened before you, that doesn't mean you don't know what's going to be, be discovered next. Um, so I think it, it can really help reduce the tedium. It could... Um, expedite a lot of things. It could review things for errors. Um, but doctors are creative and they're inquisitive and they understand that even though two patients might look very similar, if they have patient A has one extra condition that patient B, they are counterindicated for this therapy. Um, or if their lifestyle requires, you know, physical activity or whatever, like I think the physician can understand the treatment and the context of the patient's life. And I don't think an AI can ever do that. Thank you for listening to Bio Radio. I'd like to thank Carla for being our guest today, speaking with us about the realities of AI and ML. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.